Welcome. You are tuned to NYC Radio Live. My name is David Ellenbogen. I am so glad that you're here with me. It's a real honor. And speaking of honors, well, two things. I never mentioned this before, but this this track underneath, this, this was recorded live on this very show by the Mandingo Ambassadors, and I've been using it as the theme for a couple couple episodes lately and you can catch them at Barbez every Wednesday anyway the the main (laughs) honor I was going to speak of was I got to hang out with one of the great jazz pianists of our time Jean-Michel Pilk and kind of tried a new format which I hope to continue with which was we just went to his house hung out and discussed while he had his piano in front of him and he improvised and was uh, generally I thought hilarious he's a really funny guy in a very subtle way I, I love this point he made about you know you don't you don't want your music you want to get out there. You don't want to feel that your your art has been ignored by the entirety of humanity, <laughs> which I love. I think we can all relate to that sentiment. Um, before we jump into that that great interview, I want to let you know that after um, Seventeen years of cranking away, interviewing great musicians. Or I, I don't know. I was on the radio for seventeen years, um, but a bunch of years interviewing great musicians. I've come out with a book, interviewing uh, with three of my favorite interviews of of all that time, and it's with the spirit medium Imbira player Cosmos Magaya. And Wasafuddin Dagar, who's a Drupad singer whose family has been keeping that music alive for over 20 generations, and with the man who's best known as John Coltrane's um, partner in crime, McCoy Tyner, the, one of the really important jazz pianists in history. Um, and the book is called Music is the Magic of a Secret World. And I'm making it available for free download for all of you on the website, nycradiolive.org. But if you feel like paying something and, and donating a little to the cause, um, you can pay what you want. And there's some options there. And I want to just quickly thank... Those people who did um, buy a copy, um, Karen and Umer and Carolyn and Hatim and Marlene and Raul and Scott. Many thanks to them and, and to everybody else who's, who's so far just taken free ones. I mean, 
in this world crowded with information it's an honor that anybody's <laughs> checking anything out so thanks to them and to you and um yeah let's let's go to the the brooklyn home of the great jazz pianist jean-michel pilk You're listening to WKCR 89.9 FM New York. My name is David Ellenbogen, and I'm thrilled to be in the home of Jean-Michel Pilk. He's here. We set up some microphones, and uh, thanks for doing this. This is really exciting. Well, it's very exciting for me, too. It's, uh, it's the best place to do something like this is your own home, your own piano, so I'm very thrilled. Okay, well, maybe you got some, some music in you. You feel yeah, like uh, starting off with something. Yeah, let's play. It's early in the morning, so let's call it a morning tune. It will be something that I like to do when I when I wake up. Maybe not exactly when I wake up, but uh, you know, in the morning, uh, the beginning of my days, I just like to improvise freely, see what happens. That's something I've been doing last forty years of my life. So let's do it. So, do you have any compositions that came out of these morning, morning uh, 
improvisations? Well, uh, that's something I do actually uh, on a regular basis is I improvise and I recall myself, you know, not all the time, because if you recall yourself all the time, you know, you, you lose that sense of improvisation, you know, mm -hmm. just, you know, it's out in the air, you will never be able to do it again. If you recall it, you always have that feeling that, you know, it's, it's not going to go away, it's on the spot, right. you know. So now when I'm improvising, I know even, you know, even though I'm trying not to think about it, I know I'm being recorded. So maybe, or certainly I'm improvising slightly differently. But uh, it does happen, yeah, that I feel like, yeah, I feel kind of inspired today. So let's put a recording machine in the piano and just improvise. And many of my, I mean, I would say quite a few of my recent tunes were born like that. You know, yeah. they were just, oh, that improvisation was cool. Uh, I want to play it again. And that becomes a tune, you know, and that and sometimes walking in the street and having a melodic idea or rhythmic idea or both, you know, mm -hmm. those are my favorite way of composing uh, away from, you know, uh, away from calculation you know it's just spontaneous natural organic uh, musical musical process do you have one that jumps out at you that, that came in this this way yeah i mean i remember a long time ago i was with some guys uh french guys uh, that was back in maybe 1990 or something like that and i, and I started like a, a slow blues in e that goes like this on a keyboard it was not even on a piano it was a kind of a old Korg M1 at the time that was a really very popular synthesizer a very great synthesizer and so I put that sound that were like voices it was like whoa, 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 whoa. it sounded like chorus or you know a choral thing and I was very inspired I, I love actually playing keyboard even though I haven't done it much lately maybe I'll do it more in the future but I was very inspired. I felt like almost like it was a choral singing it. So right. I, I just improvised that thing. And actually, when we listened to it, it was like, that's great, you know, and I've been playing it consistently over the years until now. I'm still playing it quite often. It's called Golden Key. I even have a, f a great singer named Elizabeth Contomano who put words on it. And it's in her album that was recorded 20 years ago now. So it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's a good example of an improvisation that became a tune. Yeah, and when you started out, were there particular pianists that you were just totally imitating, kind of? Yeah, of course. I think, you know, for me at the beginning, it was not even about the piano. It was actually, really, I was listening to, you know, when I was four or five years old, I was listening to, you know, my uncles were very musical. My parent, my, my, my mom especially was very musical. She was a great singer. My grandmother. We had lots of music lovers in the family, even though we didn't have professional musicians per se. 
And uh, so at the age of four or five, I was exposed to, you know, Tchaikovsky and Beethoven and, and uh, Chopin and Django Reinhardt and Louis mm -hmm. Armstrong and things by the Baker. And for me, it was all the same. What, what I mean by that is that I didn't make any difference, you know. For me, great music was great music. I was a kid of five, and each time I heard something that I loved, it was just something that I loved. And I have to admit now that I am the same now at the age of 54 as I was. I'm going to turn 54 on Sunday, so it's coming fast. Uh, October 19th. So uh, I was the same. I am the same right. now as I was. And so that's why sometimes I'm so, I'm so surprised at the politicization and labelization or labeling or labeling. Mm -hmm. I don't know. How Categorization. Know. Yeah, so exactly. I, I'm almost, I'm, all, I, I'm really very allergic to that because I think it goes contrary to the way I discovered music and I learned how to love it, you know. And I didn't, I didn't learn how to love it. I just loved it. Period. But it goes contrary to everything about me that loves music. So if you were to take a Django Reinhardt idea and put it on the piano, yeah, like a Reinhardt voice. <laughs> You know, this is pure adrenaline, you know, it drives you nuts, you know. There's stuff like that, you know, that people don't dare do anymore because they, you know, they're trying to do complicated scales and I don't know what, but that was like completely, uh, you know, it was primal. Mm -hmm. It like just hit me in the, in the chest, you know. And that's something I discovered about music really, really early, that the physicality of it, how physical it is. Yeah. And that's when and I am so sometimes, uh, I don't know the word, but astonished at some of my students because they, they kind of discovered music uh, in a way that's so intellectual. And sometimes I realize that they don't know about that physicality of music, that they don't have much experience of it. And I'm like, how could you? That's how you learn how to love music is through the, the physical side of it. You know, when I was five and I heard that Django Reinhardt thing, it really hit me in the chest. It was a real, almost painful thing, you know? I was like, <gasps> couldn't breathe, you know? It's not like getting hit by a, by a boxer or something. And so sometimes they're like, yeah, which kind of scale do you play on this chord? And I'm like, have you ever been hit in the chest by Django Reinhardt? No, so that's, let's start there, you know? And I bring them back to that because I think that's, that's to me, the starting point of music is there, you know? Physicality, physical, sensuality. Hmm. It's a sexual thing. Lower chakras. Yeah, yeah. So maybe I don't know. What can you give an example? Maybe another physical musician, like a musical example of a real physical. Like I'm thinking Count Basie is a real oh, yeah, physical. Like, uh, <laughs> 
when, when he repeats that kind of stuff, like sometimes, like, you know, sometimes he's just gonna do like. you in a trance mm. you know it's like acupuncture you know putting a needle in the right place and of course uh, then I discovered Errol Gar I talk about a physical musician you know, like, uh, like, uh, like when he was playing uh, I don't know uh, uh, such a fan but you know when it when it does like is it in for and he goes soft like that suddenly and he swings like that you like it stops you from breathing you're like oh oh wow you know it gets your breathing you know there's really something extremely intense about it and you know that's something that's funny that it's achieved with pretty simple means you know say you know uh, swing is this swing is that and you, everybody has an idea what the definition of swing is but the thing that if you listen to a Roll Gower he plays straight eight he, he's gonna play that <laughs> his phrasing is almost like bah and it swings like crazy because you know because because of what I don't know by right. definition now because I don't know what what swing is I'm not as intelligent as some of my colleagues, but uh, what I know that it swings incredibly, and he plays like straight eight stuff, you know? And so you're like, how come it swings? Because I, I thought swings were supposed to be... You know, triplet feel. People think that's what swing is. No, nobody knows what swing is. It's like love, you know? You don't know what love is. So uh, I, I, think, uh, I think that also taught me something that if I wanted to play this music, I had to listen to all those guys and understand what they were doing from a physical point of view, not from a theoretical or intellectual or, I don't know, point of view, abstract. I had to actually play like them. So I did imitate all those guys, you know, with different degrees of success, you know. Some, uh, Errol Garner, I used to imitate pretty, almost perfectly, now it's not exactly, you know, I've been doing it in a long time. Uh, my hero Garner for this show so mm -hmm. but uh, but I, it's still in me you know it's not very important that I don't play like him exactly what's important is that it's in me you know that yeah. that physical thing that he expresses when he plays is part of my makeup of my musical makeup you know uh, so I think that's that's an important thing to me and I think when you're talking about the sound waves hitting you in the chest um, I'm thinking right away of the way Monk would plunk two notes next to each other.
playing of Monk, which, you know, I'm imperfectly imitating here. I'm not even trying to imitate him. I'm just trying to get the spirit of it. Is there's a lot of, of Basie. There's a lot of Errol Garner. There's a lot of those guys. Because Monk started, you know, he was a stride pianist. Right. You know, he was like very influenced at the time by people like uh, Teddy Wilson, for example, who was not a fantastic pianist. And so Monk has that thing, that tradition in him of stride piano, of of Basie, of those guys, you know. And there is this incredible video where he plays, I believe it's it's Blue Monk, I think, uh, and Count Basie is sitting near the piano and watches Monk. Mm. So, and you see Monk playing, sweating, you know, super focused and, you know, he tapping his foot, you know, where that's insane that actually the camera shows you his foot. And, uh, and it's funny to see that video because you can really like, Monk is like a Count Basie, Gone, gone mad, you know, a, a little bit, you know. And there is this really, uh, this this relationship between the two. And I think that's something that people don't understand very often when it comes to Monk, is that Monk's is all about swing and blues and melody. It's not like only, you know, the strange harmonies. And, you know, um, it's not only that. It's also the the the, the, the melodic thing, you know, like. like what it is it's with you know that's incredible monk writes a blues with a major with a major sevens in it idea that Monk had that was pure genius you know it's like I'm gonna write a blues but it's gonna be a major seven of course he didn't think like that he was not sitting at the piano saying oh I'm gonna put a major seven it just came to him you know it just came to him like all the greatest improvisers music came to him naturally you know and I'm sure many of Monk tunes were actually improvisation he was sitting at the piano having an idea and boom it became the tune and, and so that's something that people tend to to, to not understand sometimes about Monk is the 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 the, the the root that he has, you know, very, very deeply in, uh, in, 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 in more traditional jazz. And he was, of course, as I think many people know, very influenced by Duke Ellington, for instance. Right. And he's another one whose swing is not a conventional swing. Oh, yeah. Some people hate it. I mean, somebody like Miles didn't really like it. He expressed it once in an interview, you know. It was like, yeah, I don't know what he said exactly, but he was, you know, it, it's not for everybody, right. obviously. It's not for everybody, you know, like uh, sometimes. Uh, I don't remember how to imitate Monk. I haven't done it in a long time, you know, so I'm not going to try that. But there is something that could sound, yeah, I, I mean, the first time I heard Monk, very honestly, it sounded kind of stiff and rigid to me. Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, that guy is kind of like, didn't practice enough or something, but something almost like rigid about it, like something uh, stiff, you know, like. And, and it's like the first time you see a painting by Picasso and you're like, what the hell is that, you know? It, it doesn't, it, 
I mean, the first time I saw painting of Picasso with the eyes not being in the right place, I was like, this is ugly. Right. This guy is just out of his mind. How come he's so famous? And then you, 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 you know, you discover, you know, you, sometimes you need to, to learn a little bit, you know, about the art. And so I think Monk, uh, after a while, I started warming up to his play and I, it started making sense to me more and more. And there still are some stuff from Monk that I like better than some others. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's like, that's what it is. It's like Picasso. It's like something that, you know, some people can dislike. And they are very much entitled to. But it's something completely unique and particular. And there's nothing even remotely like it in the history of music. So for that only, I think it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic thing, you know. And also, you can, you can swing by having tension against everybody else who's swinging. Right? You that's know, the thing like that sometimes I tell my students, you can swing with one note. For example, if I do, I'm not swinging. But if I do, I'm swinging. So what's the difference? I mean, what's the difference? You know, of course, if I do three notes, it's even easier. If I do, I'm not swinging. But if I do, see, I'm not. It's not very much different. But there is. It's a little bit, it's like language, you know, I always try to teach music like a language. So, for example, uh, I speak English very well, but with an accent. I have a French accent, I know. I'm, I will never lose it. I mean, I was about to say, unfortunately, no, well, that's who I am. But I mean, some people in America speak with an accent that's much bigger than mine, much you know, in the South or Midwest or whatever. But you can hear they're American. You know, you can say, okay, you know, they're from Dallas right. or Chicago or whatever, but, you know, you can hear they're American. Somebody who hears me knows I'm not American, knows I was born somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Some people don't recognize the French accent because uh, I don't speak like that. I make an effort to speak uh, decent English. But, uh, but it's there. There is an accent that's not indigenous or something, you know, and you can hear it. I think that's the same with swing, that you can speak tons of different ways, really, and swing. Monk swings, Basie swings, Aragona swings, Amadjamal swings, Bill Evans swings, Keith Jarrett swings, Herbie swings, McCoy swings, I can continue like that right, just with pianists and then I can, yeah. we can start with sax players and do the same. And you will see that nobody articulates the same, nobody swings the same, nobody speaks the same. You know, if you compare, like, I don't know, like people as extreme as uh, uh, Lester Young and Coltrane, it's very extraordinary different type of articulation, you know, but both swing. So when people ask me wh what is swing, I'm like, that's a absolutely impossible. It's a question that's impossible to answer because look at two different players and you will have, it will be so different. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, you cannot pinpoint one thing, you know, it's just, but they speak the right language, mm. like people who speak English the right way. And then you hear a classical player trying to play jazz, it happens sometimes, you know? And you hear, yeah, no, no man, that's not, the, that's not right. Or a pop singer, you know? Some pops, not all of them, but some can do it, some cannot. And, and when, when you hear some of them trying to play jazz and it's, it sounds wrong, it sounds out of place, and you're like, yeah, that's, you know, me, like me trying to read Shakespeare, you know? So uh, that's how it is, it's, it's very difficult to, to theorize, but uh, I can definitely hear. 
Well, let's talk about the, the kind of the classical players that kind of work their way into your sound. I mean, Debussy, I would imagine, is somebody who... I mean, I was not too much into 20th century music, even though Debussy was a little bit before that, but he was kind of, of both 19th and 20th century. But the thing that really, in terms of classical music, that really inf I discovered very young was people more like romantic, like Beethoven, uh, for sure, Chopin. I would say Beethoven and Chopin probably. Tchaikovsky, my uncle's loved, you know, Nutcracker, Swan Lake, and stuff like that. I discovered Gershwin very young. Uh, that was 20th century music, but it's already a little bit different, of course. So uh, I discovered like more modern composers later. I would say Ravel, Debussy, Scriabin, Rachmaninoff, Prokofiev. All those guys that I love now, I discovered when I was in my, probably in my late teens, you know. So, but all those people, of course, were, yeah, big influences. I mean, the first time I heard Prokofiev, I was like, wow, it's incredible. It sounds normal, except there are some wrong notes, you know. But those wrong notes are so incredibly good, you know. And then I, it opened my ear, and then, you know, later I heard Rite of Spring, of course. And I, I really, really... Uh, it really expanded my horizon, but but at the beginning it was more like people like Beethoven and Chopin and Schubert, more that romantic. Even though Chopin hated being called romantic, he didn't think his music was romantic at all, which is kind of true. But uh, there was something about Chopin in particular that really, I think, is still one of the most incredible influences on me. I always felt his music was one of the most incredibly moving, perfect, and deep music I've ever heard. Do you have any of those pieces in your... Yeah, I could play you a, yeah. a Chopin valse if you'd yeah, like. Of course. Might be a couple of wrong notes, but uh, I can always try. Level. Uh, 
that's something that struck me when I heard these valses and you know all the critics are like yeah it's a minor work I'm like what the hell does that mean first who are, who are you to say that and second what, what does that mean what is the meaning of it's a minor work yeah it's minor or some obviously that's F minor so it's minor but you know pe people are so arrogant with all their classification and I'm like if I play this valse, I mean, you know, uh, I'm sure I didn't play it perfectly, but it's a perfect work. It's like perfection. Nothing, you, like they say in Abadeus in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the play, you know, change one note and there would be diminishment. Chopin is a bit like Mozart to me, you know, like you cannot touch a note, mm -hmm. you know. And he was a big admirer of Bach. He was the only composer. Bach was the only composer that Chopin never said anything bad about, you know, because he was kind of a, Bad mouth. He has opinions. Yeah, normal. That's another thing that's right. forbidden these days. But you know, at the time people just spoke their mind, which I will. And he said some really outrageous things. But let's not go there. So, uh, so anyway, um, Beethoven was pretty bad too. So um, Chopin wrote. When Chopin wrote, everything was completely felt at the deeper. And the other thing that impressed me, maybe a little bit later, was that basically he invented modern harmony. Mm. I mean, when you listen to Beethoven or Schubert, as incredible as it is, God knows I love Schubert and Beethoven. Beethoven is, I don't, I'm not saying anything particular by saying that he's probably, you know, one of the greatest monuments in all of the history of music. But it sounds like more classical. That, let's mm -hmm. put it. Some of Chopin sounds like Bill Evans. Mm -hmm. Maybe, can you illustrate what you mean for people? Who uh, let, yeah, let me think of maybe something like... Uh, uh, what could I play? Um, for example, that, that very famous, excuse me. stuff and sus four and shit like that and stuff like that well the radio I should remember um, is really like the beginning of modern harmony it's really something that you didn't hear before and it's done in a way that's so perfect that you're like well, where does it come from well you have an example of that in Beethoven already and but it's not like the whole vocabulary of Chopin is completely original and comes from nowhere to me it's really like uh, somebody who's actually underrated so, and you know that, that the, the one of these etudes does this. I cannot really play it anymore, but the, the phrase is... That's 
Wow, what, what was that? You have nothing equivalent in, 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 in Schubert, Beethoven, or even Schumann, or, you know, and Schumann, Schumann was, adds those things, that's definitely the beginning of those, you know, modern harmony stuff, but Chopin really built his old work, his old work on that completely original and, and unheard before colors. And that's not a, a coincidence if people like uh, Debussy and Ravel were extraordinary, big admirers of Chopin, you know, mm -hmm. because, you know, they, they, they heard that, they heard that he was a precursor in all that work about opening the harmony, you know, he was definitely, I think, the precursor of that. What, if not the first one. What I've heard about uh, Debussy is that they were exposed to the, the music of of Bali, like a gamelan came through France in the World's Fair. Mm -hmm. You know, so it, it he had that abstract harmonies or you know these sus things and coming from from Chopin, but but also he got into some weird time things that they were exploring in Indonesia, you know. You know the, first, the first thing that Ravel uh, published, it's called the uh, Monument Antique, he wrote it when he was 19. The first chord is this. So it's like, wow, you know, it's like Monk almost, it does something like almost, hey, I'm going to start with a chord that nobody has done before. And then the whole thing progresses and it sounds, uh, it sounds like, sometimes it sounds like Prokofiev and Rachmaninoff. There is lots of, uh, anticipation of that mm -hmm. and it was written way before so those guys are really had really a vision of opening the music you know I think in two different ways because Ravel was much more of a classicist he, he liked to use classical form and stuff and mm -hmm. do something special with them which he did That's pretty much every time he wrote anything you know uh, WC was I think a, a different type of personality they're, they're too often confused they're very very different but but both definitely you know open the musical field like crazy but you know, everybody say oh the, the french composer i'm like no because at the time you had people like Scriabin or, or mm -hmm. you know Mussorgsky uh, and people like that Scriabin especially and, and then like maninoff uh, pretty that we're doing stuff that was not very not so different you know stravinsky of course except that stravinsky was maybe more uh, less of a piano, of a piano guy than the, than the other ones, but uh, but uh, there was really this opening of harmony, and I, I have to repeat that I think a lot of it came from Chopin, comes from his ideas. And when I think of great, great bass players, you know, I, I think of. pianist has to be a great bass player because you know Ray Brown said something uh, really true I, I'm sure I'm gonna misquote him a bit because I can't remember exactly but he said something to the effect of you know you have the melody and you have the bass the rest is feeling it's true I, 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 I also tell you know people my students all you know I'm like you know it's like a bookshelf you have the rhythm that's where the book are 
you know, rest on the bookshelf. And then you have two bookends. On the right bookend is the melody, and the left bookend is the is a, is a bass. Because everybody's so obsessed by harmony and chord progression, you know. You have lots of people who have been like trained through the real book, which is insane, you know. And they live in a harmonic jail. I'm like, no, you know, forget about harmony for a moment and just think of, you know, I want you to be able to do. to play a melody and a bass and that both make sense before they do like a, you know you know because they, they, they get to, to there and that's what they preoccupy them is how which kind of what are the smartest cleverest you know most impressive chords I can come up with and I'm like yeah but if you don't hear a bass and a simple bass and a melody together against each other with the right swing you know if you don't hear that there's no need starting to put colors on your canvas you know you have to draw first so uh, we work a lot on that and to me bass player I always also tell my students transcribe bass live Go to Kind of Blue, I know many people talk about it these days for some reason, but, you know, do go to Kind of Blue and transcribe what Paul Chandler does. Everybody transcribes Miles, Coltrane, Cannonball, trans Bill Evans, transcribe what Paul Chandler does. Because if you don't hear it, you, you're not hearing the music. You know, it, people very often, you know, hear only the right side of the music, if I may say, so they're like going <laughs> You know, playing like all kind of like nonsense on the right hand and the right hand, the left hand is doing pretty much nothing. I'm like, no, no. I mean, it's actually more important what's happening on the bass. If the bass is inspiring, then your right hand or whatever is playing the melody is going to be inspired to do something musical. You know, see, if I do beginning of all the things you are again.
ground on which I'm walking. If that ground is shaky, which happens sometimes, you know, when you improvise, then I, I'm, it's like I'm falling in, in, a, in a hole. I'm like, oh shit. So I have to recover, but it's pretty much always because the bass is not right. Well, at that end, I can always, you know. <laughs> Everybody's very impressed by that type of thing. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't play a note of music here. I just bullshitted my way through the whole thing by just playing fast, you know? And that's easy to do. Th that's not difficult. What's more difficult is to, to do something like this. So here, you know, I mean, I, I, I have this idea, I don't know if you could call it a decision, I don't, I don't like that word, because I don't think improvisation is something you decide, I think it comes out of you, you know. But I heard that note, it's a B, it's a B natural. And suddenly I was like, I was hearing the melody of all the things you are on that B natural. Why? I don't know. You know, there's no why, that's like the universe, you know, so there, you know, so. <laughs> That's the idea. And I figured, and again, it's not conscious, it's, I want to stay there. I don't want to move from there, you know? I mean, that's also the mistake that jazz musicians, including me, do a lot, is sometimes you have in the middle of an idea and you're like, oh, 
that's boring. I'm gonna go somewhere else. So I'm like, no, don't don't go anywhere. Let's mm -hmm. let the music decide, you know. So I was feeling good with that beat, mm -hmm. and that's the bass player. Right. And it's not enough to play a beat, it has to groove too, because many people also when they do those kind of things, they forget about the groove. You know, and you know, you don't hear the rhythm, and to me it's like swimming in a river that has no current, you know? So I, I want to swim in a river that has current to carry me, and that current is going to be the rhythm, the groove. And it's provided in that case by the bass player, by that bee, that guy, that guy playing a bee, like, you know, wow. Right. It's a great sound, you know? And from there, the music almost plays itself, mm -hmm. you see? Because of the bass, you know? So now, of course, I'm using voicings and harmonies and stuff, but in a way, those are colors that I see thanks to, the, to this bass, thanks to this bass melody. It's a one-note melody, but it's still a melody, with, with this rhythm, you know? And I can s then I have the current, and I, I just have to swim through the current, you know. Of course, you know that's kind of some practice behind that, but but I think mainly the bass is what's providing the inspiration, you know, in many tunes, in most tunes. And do you, when you're playing these kind of splashes of color that you did towards the end with the with the right hand, right? Is that something that you? Are you thinking like you can hear every single one of those notes before you play it, or is it just, or, or is it, how yes. does that work? Yes and no. I don't know how that works. Right. I'm going to disappoint you right away. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, no, what I know is that. Maybe yeah. that's a relief. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's what Glenn Gould said. If you ask the caterpillar to think about the movement of each of his legs, it's not going to move. Right. It mm -hmm. can't, it, it won't be able to move to walk. Uh, that's something that Glenn Gould talked about, is when you think of things and you cannot do them anymore. Mm -hmm. So he did something crazy, like he practiced back and he put a vacuum cleaner near, to the near the piano as loud as possible, so that he couldn't hear himself, and he said, that way I don't think anymore, and you know, I can play. Sometime when you had, when you had a play, it was a bit strange, of course, but you know, that's a good point. So uh, sometime when my left hand is blocked, I think about my right hand, and they unblock the left, because I just, mm -hmm. I'm not thinking about it anymore. But I would say, yeah, when I play those things, I would say, yeah, I hear them. I could whistle them at the same time. You know, I do that. Sometimes on stage, I play the piano and whistle. So let's, let's do another tune because I'm going to get sick of sure. all the things you are. But if I do, for example, Autumn Leaves. Same time, 
you know, and it's kind of unison, as you know. Right. It's not always perfectly unison, but it's it's close. So I feel like yes, I can hear every one of mm -hmm. those notes because if I couldn't hear them, I couldn't whistle them. Right. So. But the thing is that it's not like I hear them consciously, like, oh, I'm going to play an A. And right. It's like a flow, you know. Mm -hmm. Again, it's like a river. You know, when you're right. in a river, you, go, you don't see all the molecules of water. Right. But you feel the water ag around you. That's, I think, is a good comparison. And you see, when I'm whistling and playing the piano at the same time as a compass, you know, as a... <laughs> every note that I'm playing on the piano because I'm whistling, you know, so to me it's kind of another guy that's playing the piano at that moment and you can hear, I think, the importance of the bass, how the bass actually make the whole thing work, you know, if the bass is not there, I won't be able to do it, I won't be inspired as a soloist to whistle or sing or whatever, you know, so that's the important thing and I always tell my students another thing, is that you should be able to play the instrument and sing, you should be able to... <laughs> fluency test as I call it. Mm -hmm. If I can improvise something that sounds like something, of course if I do no. But if I do something that sounds like something on top of playing the piano, that's a fluency test. Mm -hmm. That's how can you speak and do something in, in in the same time? If you're fluent in a language you can speak while you're preparing coffee or something, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's a fluency thing. Or can you do like play a bass and tap a rhythm. I think those are really what I call my fluency test. I'm like, can you actually tap a rhythm and just talk without screwing up the rhythm? Most students, as soon as they start talking, that's what happened. I'm like, no, your rhythm is your heartbeat. It shouldn't disappear when you talk. It should be, that's what I call internalization. Music should be something internal. It shouldn't be something intellectual that you have to think about, you know? And uh, I call it, you know, I call it creative multitasking or, you know, it, it has some analogies with computers, you know, but, uh, but I feel like that to me is the way that to make music, because at the end, if you have that internalization taking place, at the moment that you play, you hear yourself as though you are not playing. That was something I discovered when I was in my 30s, is I improvised a lot at home, but I never really recorded myself. It was more difficult than now, you didn't have those zooms and right. stuff like that. But one day I actually bought a mini cassette at the time or something. And I started recording myself, and I was pretty much horrified by the difference between what I thought I had played and what it sounded like <laughs> two days later. And I was like, I thought it was good, and I hate it. Well, how come? And I realized that I was not hearing myself when I was playing. I was just typewriting. Mm. And you're like, oh, man, this is genius. And then you listen to it two days later, and you're like, no, there's nothing in it. It's, I was just not listening. I was just not hearing. I was not even hearing the sound of the instrument. So by recording myself, I learned how to be a listener of myself. And that, in return, uh, made me understand the importance of internalization, of being available to hear the music. You have to express that music naturally without having to think about it. And how does, how does one develop that? Hmm. Time. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm asking myself this question every morning. 
Sometimes I sit at the piano and I suck and I'm like, why? Right. You know, I'm not like, oh, I'm so happy about myself now. No, that's not true. Sometimes I wake up, I play and I'm like, how come I can't hear anything? Mm. You have to go back to some, on a regular basis, you have to go back to the, to the laboratory, to the drawing table and right. rediscover the music. It's, it's a question with, which doesn't have an answer. Thanks. Yeah. I was about to say, thanks God, even though I'm not quite a, your typical believer, but uh, I, I would say the mystery, that's the, the mystery keeps you on your toes. If there was no mystery anymore, if you had an answer to that question, then right. it would be the end of, would be the end of the beautiful quest, I believe. But I, I feel that hard work or, or consistent work will probably make those kind of peak experiences right. more likely. It's true, absolutely, you're right. I mean, you know, yeah, I, I, I used to be a hard worker a little bit less since I have kids, but uh, <laughs> for time reasons and, you know, but uh, I felt like when I was in, again in my 30s, I had this very, uh, I would say a very rigorous work routine, you know, technique and classical music a lot mm -hmm. and, you know, improvise, trying to improvise on, on on standards with a nice bass line and a nice mm -hmm. melody like I, I played before, you know, different keys, mm -hmm. you know, stuff like that, which I don't do remotely enough these days, but you know, sometimes I do it for my students and I practice for them, that's good. But uh, yeah, I had a very rigorous work routine. There are two things that it does. It, it uh, elevates your lower level, if mm -hmm. I may say, so right. you're not good, you're still okay. You right. And it gives you much more consistency which means the difference between the good and the bad becomes less. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It also relaxes you because you get more confident. It gives you ideas, technique gives ideas. That's what Martial Solal said once to me. Mm. And that's a very beautiful sentence, it's very true. Uh, it also uh, makes you play at a lower percentage of your abilities. Uh -huh. You know, when I play and I'm satisfied, I'm often like, 50%, I can talk, I can look around, I can, mm -hmm. I like to do that. I remember that 20 years ago, my eyes were glued to a key and I was like absorbed by my own playing and I was at 90% and I can hear it in the recordings when I hear them now, I'm like, yeah, right. I can hear. I was close to the 100% to, to the of my possibility. That doesn't sound as good as when you are at 60%. You know, if you listen to somebody like Art Tatum, it's pretty unbelievable that, you know, you hear the, those, supernatural things mm -hmm. and you feel that he's like not even like 50 or 60 percent of his possibilities and that's why it sounds so good and that's why the groove and the swing is there that's why it sounds so natural so relaxing and that's why it's so rewarding to listen to and you've played with so many great players i imagine that if when you're playing you're listening to them you're in good shape right <laughs> like you know if you're it definitely helps it's yeah yeah, so I mean, you know, yeah. Sometimes you reach, you know, you've, you're tired, you get to a jazz club, you're like almost like almost sleeping already, it's late. Mm -hmm. And you hear the, you know, some guy playing the drums and some guy playing the bass in a way that inspires you and, you know, it, boom, you know, it, yeah, it sends you to another place, to another zone, that's for sure. That has been my, my issue with solo piano for a long time is to be able to do that when you play solo. Right. I found a kind of a, a way lately to achieve that. It's a very schizophrenic process, but uh, it's good. <laughs>
And uh, coming up, you have a new solo piano right. record coming out. That's yeah. coming out in a few weeks. Coming. It's actually coming out end of January, you know, okay, beginning okay. of February. We had to synchronize it with some events. But uh, yeah, I can tell you what it's about, and it's actually going to be interesting in relation to what we said before. That it's a set of thirty variations on what is a thing called love, mm-hmm. and uh, the standard that uh, you probably know, and uh, by Cole Porter. And that's something I've been doing since years, is, you know, theme and variation. Mm-hmm. Classical musicians did it all the time, you know, everybody knows the Goldberg and the Diabelli, Beethoven and Schubert and Mozart and, mm-hmm. you know, theme and Brahms, Stravinsky, Rachmaninoff, you know, all, lots and lots of musicians, classical musicians have been there. They take a theme and then they do a set of variations. Every variation is like one form long, two form longs. I mean, and of course I forgot Beethoven, and his last sonatas. I mean, no, I mentioned the Diabelli. And uh, that's kind of the reverse that what jazz musicians usually do. Mm-hmm. They take a standard and they improvise for like 10 minutes on the same tempo, same harmonies, and this and that. Right. So it's, you could call it a variation or variation, but actually that's not what it is. So I can show you maybe a couple of variations on what you think of right now to show sure, you a yeah. bit what it sounds like. And that's something that I feel is extremely inspiring because every time you start a new variation, it's like you have to go to another planet. Mm. It's really space travel. So uh, I know it's been done already, even though I didn't see it done that like that. I mean, I know that uh, Dan Tepfer, who actually recorded my album, is uh, not only a fantastic pianist, but also a great, great engineer when it comes to the piano, uh, did a, a Goldberg variation variation thing where he played the Goldberg and he made an improvised variation over each variation of the Goldberg. Wow. Which is killing, which is a great idea. The kind of idea that classical musicians had, you know, when they mm-hmm. did those transcription, or you know, when Ravel transcribed stuff for orchestra, or the variation, or, or like Schoenberg taking uh, Schubert's tune and turning them around, stuff like that. But um, what I did is different. It's actually more traditional, just taking a theme and making variations out of it. And uh, so it could give something like this. I'm going to start with a theme, and then. I'm
thanks for that. That's beautiful. Yeah. You know, it's always the same when I do it. There are some variations that I'm more satisfied than some others, you know. I mean, there are some that I feel, oh, that's cool. I'm, I'm, and there are some others I'm like, yeah, that one's, you know. So, of course, when I did the recording, I, I selected the one that I liked because, you know. But it's true that at some point I did a whole session in a Saturday evening after a good, good glass of really good Italian wine. And uh, I recorded an hour non-stop, you know. And that's a big part of the CD because, you know, when you find, you, when you find the story, you know, it guides you, you know, it's, mm. it's incredible. And the thing that the melody, that, that standard, it's a beautiful song, of course. Cole Porter was one of the best, as we all know. And even sometimes when you don't play it at all, because some variation, you know, you, I don't even play, but it's always on my mind. It's a bit like the moon with the tides, you know, you, you see the tides, right. you don't know what it is, but, you know, science has shown that it's the, it's the moon, you know. But you don't see it, you don't see the pro. you just, you know, see it indirectly. And for me, that's, that's the beauty of it, is that sometimes you do a variation, and the melody is there without being there. You know, you, you feel it indirectly, because it's on my mind, without being expressed, mm. you know, uh, clearly, or, uh, you know. And then you have the same, in the, you know, Beethoven showed the way for that in his last sonatas, or in the Diabelli, where he played the, the melody, and some of the variation, you know, you're like, yeah, that's nothing to do with the melody anymore. Actually, it does, but it's, right. you know, it's there without being there. When you reach the moment where you do a variation like that, you're, and it works, it's very gratifying because you feel like this kind of very specific, focused type of inspiration. You know, it's like mm. a, laser, a laser ray. But it doesn't work every time. Sometimes mm. it just doesn't go through. You know. It's almost, it's like a metaphor. It's almost like life itself, right? It's like Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You have good days, bad day, good hours, bad hours. You have a... I, I think improvisation, you know, that's my problem with the... All the people who try to theorize it or politicize it or categorize it or rationalize it or whatever they're trying to achieve, I think they're very misguided because I think it's one of the most universal things you can think about. You know, I think human beings improvise all their lives. Mm. I mean, we, we wake up in the morning and we start improvising. I mean, you know, you make your coffee, you improvise, you know, you never do it the same way twice. Sometimes it's better than some others. With me, it's consistently bad, but you know. And then, you know, you, you improvise. You, you know pretty much what you're going to do. Even, you know, you have a job, you go to your job, whatever, you go mm -hmm. to the studio, or you say, I'm going to practice the piano or the guitar, or whatever. But there is a huge part of improvisation at every second. And that's why when I see all this, to me, sorry, in my opinion, nonsense about improvisation, I'm like, guys, stop, you know, stop, you, you, you know, you're just damaging the thing, you know, by, by, by doing that, you know, by, by trying to break the mist, by trying to over-talk it, by trying, I mean, that's what I'm doing right now, I should mm -hmm. shut up, but, uh, you know, just let it be, it's, it's life, don't try to explain life, you know, right. you know, it's like all those self-help books, try to be a better person, try to, you know, and I'm like, no, that's not, to me, that's not how uh, I think Emily Dickinson was talking about humor and she said it's like a frog you could dissect it but it dies in the process yeah exactly it's true it's very true and, 
humor is a very important. I mean, in my music is very important. I'm somebody who likes to make jokes, you know. And uh, I do, I do. I'm doing a variation in, in the record that's dedicated to Martial Solal, this phenomenal French piano yes. player has been, a, you know, a really huge inspiration to me. And I'm, I'm imitating. music it's a very important part mm -hmm. of the Earl Garments of Louis Armstrong Dizzy right. is their incredible sense of humor and that's something that I feel music has lost quite a bit these days you know people yeah. want to be goddamn serious you know and I think it's a huge mistake is, is they're doing the same mistake that because your quote you know that was yeah. very apropos they're doing the same mistake with humor and then with, uh, with that they, they're just killing it in the process they're just like damaging something and I feel I feel like to me much of the music I don't want to sound like an old fart who's criticizing you know the, the youngest guy because I hear some stuff that's really remarkable you know from younger musicians believe me I'm not that kind of guy who say oh, it was better at my time I hate that <laughs> type of stupid rhetoric but yeah. uh, but uh, I hear very often that young guys tend to be like they want to be taken seriously because you know it's difficult right you know, you want to make a living, you want to, somebody to, you know, I wouldn't say a record deal because those, those times are pretty much over, <laughs> but, you know, you want to make, you know, you want to, yeah, be successful, yeah. you know, tour, you, you want to, to be a musician, you know, you want to stay home and be ignored by the, by the whole of humanity. So you want to be, you want, you want to be, you know, you want to express yourself. Music is communication, too, you know. So, uh, so you want to be taken seriously, you want to be uh, appreciated, and many people, I think confuse seriousness with quality, and even more, they, they confuse pretentiousness with depth, which I think right. is one of the most dramatic confusions that's taking place right now. Wow. Well, I know we're, we're just. I don't want to put you in a rushing mode, so. No, no, no. And, and I know you got a place to go, but you won awards for your whistling, right? You're like a. You, we have another. We have another. Just so that you can kind of go. We have another. Oh, okay. I don't want to well, do it too long good, either. Cool. Okay, I just don't want you to get in a rushing thing no, 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 with, no, that's with rapping. On in 20 minutes, I don't think I will be anything to say anymore. I will okay. be destroyed. Let's hear some killing whistling. What's, what's oh. Well, it's difficult these days because the air is very dry and I just got a cold, so my nose okay. is a bit... I'm not going to start the whole complaining shit, but uh, it's, it's an instrument that's very tricky. Sometimes it could... I, I mean, I could do um, I could do a ballad. Okay. I'm going to try and do a... There is this beautiful song by Jacques Brel. He was a Belgian singer mm -hmm. uh, who wrote those absolutely amazing songs, you know. Uh, and there is one called Ne me quitte pas, Don't Leave Me. <laughs> 
Oh, yes. That's extremely sad. And I can try to maybe whistle it for you and try to do something with it. We'll see.
Boyfriend could be anything, you know. Right. But he's asking her or him or whoever to not to leave. Oh, uh, don't quit me. Don't basically. quit me. Don't leave me. Don't quit me. Don't you know? Don't yeah. go away. And he's like, I want to be the shadow of your dog at some point, you know. I want to be the shadow be, of your dog. I want to be l'ombre de ta main, the shadow of your hand, the shadow of your dog, the shadow. But don't leave me. You know, whatever. I'll do whatever you want. You know. Wow. But you know you have to hear the originals. I mean that's the kind of song that you have to you cry every time you hear it. There's no choice. Mm-hmm. You know it doesn't give you any choice. It's like the end of Charlie Chaplin's City Lights. You know like you have to cry. Oh, you know there's no <laughs> there's no other possibility. That's the same level of you know of emotion. Mm-hmm. Charlie Chaplin was a good musician too. Right? Charlie Chaplin was like one of the most amazing geniuses to ever have walked the face of earth. I mean you know he was probably a pretty difficult man. But uh, that guy was a great musician, fantastic melodist, wrote some incredible songs. That song is actually in a in an album that I did with uh, Forza Muta and Ari Honig. It's the melody of Muta Honig, it's called Freedom, Motema. some great stuff and he was of course you know the director and producer and actor that we all know you know that's that's the dancer you know that guy was well in that era what a brain you had to you know I've I've interviewed Randy Weston and he said you know back back in my early days you know you didn't you weren't just a musician. You had to be able to dance, and you had to be able to wait tables. <laughs> you, yeah. know, you had to do all these things. Yeah, and of in course, the cabaret days yeah, or, yeah. or the vaudeville days, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. maybe you had to know some magic tricks. Yeah, you had you to know. pay your dues, and uh, in a way, the, 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 you know, yeah, yeah, you had to be a, a normal human being. You know, somebody who who does things. Right, not so specific. You know, I, I, I mean, in, in my case, I wouldn't say I've been very uh, active at waiting tables and doing vaudeville, but. Uh, <laughs> And dancing because I'm pretty bad at it, but uh, I have worked in an office for like four days. Uh, four days, that's a big uh, Freudian slip. Uh, four years. <laughs> uh, when I was in my early twenties, I was a rocket scientist. That's how they call it. You know, I was, I was a good man. I was good at math. I was good at my studies. And so I did scientific study. I don't boast about it as much as some of my colleagues, but I, you know, I have done, I've done that, and. Uh, I think it's great. It's great that I have done something that's different. Right. I know life, you know, can be something else. Sometimes I see some young musician, they have no idea what it is not to be a musician, you know. They're just carrying their guitar in Brooklyn and going to sessions with like headphones and big uh, 
they look like they have, they've never been in the real world ever. And I don't think that's very good for them and for the music. I, I think it's good. It's good to, to have different experiences. It's good to, to know that, you know, some people spend their life not making music. They do something else and it's great. Right. You know, I, I, when I was in my rocket scientist days, I was a pretty bad rocket scientist because I was already obsessed by music and not getting enough sleep to work in a half in an office at day. But uh, I saw some guys who were really passionate about their job and it was to me that it's the same level of passion, you know, as music or anything else. So now I'm like, when some people say, oh, you're lucky to be a musician, I'm like, no. I'm just a musician. Lucky. Everybody's lucky. I mean, not everybody's lucky, obviously, on this planet. But uh, it's not because you do an artistic job that you're lucky. Some musicians are, have been and still are miserable. You right. know, some commit suicide. Some kill themselves with drugs. You know, you can go more desperate than that. You know, so no, it's not. It's just passion. Passion is can be very dark. Too. You know, that's something that people tend to forget and you know it's very very politically incorrect to talk about darkness these days but you know there was a dark side to passion so every passion has its fantastic side and it's less fantastic so Charlie Chaplin was a notoriously unhappy person mm. you, you're like this guy should have been happy he wasn't like the best in so many f no that guy was he was a pain he was miserable he made many people miserable uh, you know including some of his kids and he was a difficult person. It was not easy for him to be who he was. Right. Not that I'm like crying on his destiny, but I'm like, yeah, you know, it's not luck. He was who he was, period, you know. Well, maybe that's just uh, the, how the universe has to work, right? This balance of dark and light. Because they say a lot of these de uh, depression might serve a role because it makes people really prolific. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's very, very... It's very, I think there's no rule. Like, the only rule I say in art is that there's no rule. There are some people who are very sunny people. You know, you see the difference, for example, between Arthur Rubinstein and Vladimir Horowitz. Mm -hmm. uh, arguably two of the greatest pianists of all time, and two friends, colleagues, and competitors. Mm -hmm. And Rubinstein was as sunny and gay as Horowitz was dark and depressed and difficult, you know? and. Uh, they just had completely different personalities. I mean, and when you hear them playing, it's, I guess you could say that you hear their personality through the music, but it's, it's an illusion. Mm -hmm. Some notoriously sunny people wrote some very dark stuff and, and vice versa, you know. Stan Getz sounds like an angel and I know that in real life he was not, you know, I mean, it's strange. I don't know what comes through music. It's, uh, it's, it's still a mystery to me. Another one of those mysteries that I don't want to solve. Right. Well, yeah, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. It's been, it's been a great really pleasure. Wonderful. If you want, yeah. I can play the last tune. And yeah, uh, let's finish off with something, whatever you're feeling. Oh, man. So I'll do another improvisation like at the beginning. Yeah, why not?
Michelle Pilk. This is the Musician Show. My name is David Ellen Bogan. Uh, many thanks. This was so much fun. Oh, thank you. That was yeah. lots of fun for me too. And um, yeah, he's always playing around town. He's got many, many CDs available in the places where people buy and download. Yeah, just m mentioning my, my website, which is very easy to remember, jeanmichelpilk.com, J-E-A-N-M-I-C-H-E-L-P-I-L-C, like my name. And uh, or you can Google my name, like that. that's what you say those days. Google me, yes. Jean-Michel Pilk, and you'll find my website. And I have quite a few dates in New York City and uh, different places. So uh, uh, with excellent musicians, I try to play only with excellent musicians. You know, uh, I'm, you know, I always try to be the weakest member of the band. <laughs> so uh, I hope to see you guys soon. It, uh, it's been a great pleasure for me to do this this show. Thank you so much. All right, thanks for listening.